Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi, Tim, welcome back to the show. How's it going? Thanks, David. It's going great. Have Thanks, you, David. It's going great. Have you had to wander <laughs> through? Have you had to wander through any jungles this week? Just metaphorically. Well, those don't count. What was your metaphorical jungle? Well, I don't know. Now I have to think of one. Hold on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's easy. Life is a metaphorical life. jungle. Yeah. Right. Yes. Parenting. Yes. Oh, that Teaching. is actually a jungle. True. Yes, my life's hard. Harder than the priest, probably. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, joke. David, how's you, how was your life? A, me- a metaphorical jungle? Sure. Or a yeah. metaphorical walk <laughs> along a cool, breezy beach in the evening, eager for the sun to rise anew. Is that more what it's like? What What is... um. What is in between those two things? The suburbs. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, well, fair enough. That's the one. <laughs> yeah, that's probably it. Okay, so we are here to talk about Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory. We are on part two, chapter one. It's the lengthy, I think the one chapter is almost 50 pages or something like that, depending on the edition you're using, of course. So we are going to talk about... We're going to talk about those well those pages here soon before we dive in though and we debate and argue and inevitably find ways to get angry about at each other um, (laughs) let's let's uh let you know about our friends over at belmont abbey college a catholic benedictine college near charlotte north carolina which has just launched a new honors college their distinctive program prepares students for an exceptional career through a flexible, robust Great Books education. The curriculum focuses on the great conversation among the most influential ancient, Christian, and modern authors and culminates in a unique senior year dedicated to considering various crises in the West. Students can choose four years of study committed exclusively to the Great Books or elect a traditional major while also taking a substantive Great Books core. Is that word substantive, substantive? How do you guys say that? I've never I've never thought about that. Whoa, really? Okay. That's a different <laughs> I think it's a different part of the country type thing, maybe there. But we'll come back to that in a second. You can make fun of me for how I say it. <laughs> Honor students will study abroad in Ireland or Italy and foster lasting friendships centered around the shared pursuit of truth. A scholarship covering nearly half of this college's tuition is included. For more information, visit BelmontAbbeyCollege.edu slash great books. And again, that's BelmontAbbeyCollege.edu slash great books books a life well lived awaits at Belmont Abbey College so so say that again substantive 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 Ooh, nicely done Heidi so I <laughs> wonder if if when they wrote the copy that they asked us to to share with our listeners if they expected me to say it that way I assume so given the both of you said it in the exact same way substantive right yeah. we have how did we I have a very, it? very, you said substantive, which is maybe right. We have a very, very firm, firm rule in our house that no one is ever allowed to make fun of anybody because of the way they pronounce something, because that probably means they've only read it, which is a sign of a good education. Oh, <laughs> so Heidi, check it out. I love that. <laughs> here's the question I have for you, though. What is the root word for which we are getting substantive? Substance, right? Yeah. There's a lot of substance to it. Okay. Weighty. Content, so meaning like say, weighty content. So do you say substantial? No. Sub- 
substantial. This is English. It makes no sense. There's absolutely <laughs> no reason for hardly any of it. So, okay. Okay. Can we do a, a pronunciation question real I'll, quick? Yeah. We better, better be quick. Cause I think we've lost a bunch of people right now. Go ahead. You think we've lost all three of them. Yeah. I'll, okay. <laughs> well, how do you, two of the three. Except the people who say substantive, they're like right on. Like yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm, they're riveted. <laughs> how do you pronounce the word? H O M O G E N E A O U N. Yeah, we know. What you're, we know what you're trying to do. Okay, okay. Homogenous. And how do you say it? How do you say it, David? Homogenous. Okay, but I. It seems how to me like say, that. David? I say homogenous also, but I have uh-huh. heard in public speech, homogeneous is becoming more and more the norm. Huh. It's becoming a more and more homogenous pronunciation. <laughs> but there's not an eus in it, is there? Yeah, E-O-U-S. Is there? But oh. do we normally say eus? I don't mean, do we normally say E-O-U-S as eus in most English words? I don't know. What other English words have that? Um, He's a no. genius. He's a... Uh, aqueous. No. <laughs> Oh, good job. That was amazing. It's like I pulled that out of nowhere. <laughs> well done, sir. Well, we should probably we should probably uh, head back to the actual reason that we are here. Um, so let's talk about let's talk about this little book. This, this is, is a little book. This is a little book. This is a section that is dedicated entire well pretty much to the narrative of the whiskey priest. Mm-hmm. And in some ways I've found that that was, um, it's, it's sort of settled the book for me. Like, like I told you guys, I haven't, I haven't read this closely before and I haven't read any of it in quite a while. So for me, the first, um, first part was, um, murky, I think was the word that we used last week. Yeah. But this chapter, uh, despite it, actually taking place in a murky place and a lot of it taking place at night brought the book to it sort of settled the tone of the book for me and and i and i was thinking about perhaps that might be because i don't know if i actually said a word a sentence there that was in any syntactical order that makes sense to people who listen to english but the point is (laughs) i was wondering if that is because then by staying with one character and sort of making him seem like our protagonist um the narrative of the book sort of allows you to track with it a little bit easier thus eliminating the murk um do you think that that is the case that that is how why i felt that way having read the book multiple times or to you does the does having read it multiple times is this actually a chapter that increases the murk for you Uh, i i totally agree with you david it it clarified the murk moved away because of this section. It, for me, like the structure of the it book is almost away. like it drifted away. The structure of the book thus far has been there are all of these different chords or threads, and they're all coming intertwined into in this chapter into one unified thread, which is um, the priest's journey. It doesn't mean that the priest knows of all of these characters that we've met thus far. Um, but it really does begin to tie together at this middle part for me. So I'm, I agree with you. What do you think, Heidi? 
I totally agree with that. And I think you're, you're right on Tim about uh, part one with its four chapters is throwing out these threads. And we've, we've talked some about that over the last couple of weeks with that, that he's throwing out these clues that are going to be decoded later. And this particular chapter kind of anchors, as you pointed out, what the problem is in the book, which is that this priest is trying to escape the police is and, and is tormented internally by it. And that there's these multiple characters who are going to have some kind of role in his journey. I like that you, uh, the way you, well, I I like, I'm trying to decide Eh, never mind. Carry on. We'll take what, what David, come on. I know. Hey, well, let's I was, experiment here. I was just going to say, well, well, I'll just put it this way. I like, I like the way that the chapter focuses it, it, like it narrows the threads. So, and I, but what I'm trying to figure mm-hmm. out is, do you think, so, well, it narrows the focus. I don't know if it narrows the threads and those are two different things, if that makes sense. And that's why I was having trouble expressing it. So it's now we, we get our focus narrowed, Yeah, which makes it easier to track with. Right. But is this a chapter where the threads that have all been cast out are beginning to, to, to intertwine and come together? Or has that not happened yet? And we're actually, the threads are actually kind of in a different plane than what happens in this chapter. Does that make sense? Like are all these yeah. other threads that were introduced, are they actually, um, have they actually coalesced into one sort of single thread? Or is that happening in a different sort of narrative thematic plane than what happens in this chapter where we have our focus narrowed. Did you see the difference between what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Right. I, I think to answer that question for me, it feels like spoiler alert. Hmm. You mean, you, in right. other words, to answer that, you'd have to spoil it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I might, yeah, I, I might true. have a different answer than Heidi. Well, I, I would have to say based on what we know right now, which is, you know, this is still the first half of the book. So, um, and, and I think that this chapter has some major turning points in it, but we're not sure where they're going to lead yet. Um, but I think it's gotta be number two of what David said that either, or that you presented that second one, uh, you know, we, Mr. Tench is not back in the dentist from the first chapter, mm-hmm. you know, Coral and the fellows family's not back in. We don't know. We've completely lost the Lieutenant, you know, that, that so or he's here, but, um, he's, there's, there's not any kind of standoff or anything. Right. So there's, well, we don't get inside his head. Right. Not, not exactly. Really. Exactly. Um, so to your point, David, I think you're exactly right that they've, he's thrown out these threads and that they're not woven together. But like you said, the focus is narrowed. Now we're inside the priest's head. Now he's having this spiritual struggle. He's, he's on a donkey going on an actual journey into the jungle. So there's, there's something happening plot wise that it's coalesced towards. Yeah. I love this. I I love the uh, the donkey thing uh-huh. Me going too. on there, riding into the dark of the jungle like a donkey, because or on a donkey because like a donkey because um it's Freudian foot, it ob- maybe yeah maybe it's obviously a, an allusion to Christ riding the donkey, but yes. it also could be an allusion to the way that Chesterton thought of you know the donkey. So um, which is what and- can you can you elaborate on that? 
Well, I don't want to confuse that with Chesterton's Chesterton's dumb ox idea, but I think it's Chesterton who who talks about the paradox of the donkey, of the donkey as like the stubborn. I could be wrong about this, so don't quote me on who it is. But the idea being that the, the donkey is like this stubborn, uh, uncooperative, you know, mule. There's a reason why we, you know, why we call people an ass, right? Um, right. And or we don't, I guess. The you know you know what I'm saying? But the, um, the real reason that word has become an insult. Um, but also that, that Christ chose to ride the donkey and the donkey was the one who bore him into Jerusalem. And the right. donkey was the one who bore Mary to Bethlehem. So there's a paradox in that. And maybe it's not Chesterton. I, I was thinking it was off the top of my head, but, um, and I think that that's in some ways that plays out in this passage as well. And so that would be pretty clear illusions. Go ahead. Yes, Go exactly right. Yes, I, and that brings us to as Tim. Wait, you don't completely agree. I do completely oh, agree. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I think that, that you're exactly right. And here's where we see uh, the biblical motif. This particular chapter is where we see the biblical motif really become unfolding. Um, that here is, and and the beginning of Holy Week, the beginning of Christ's hero's journey. And the Bible begins with him riding on an ass into a place of persecution, right? But we have the priests here riding on an ass, attempting to escape persecution. And so there's, there is this very clear biblical structural structure forming in the story. And yet there's still this paradox within it of struggle. And, Mm. and that adds this, this, layer of depth, even if we're not picking up on it, um, consciously, uh, I, I think for all readers, we're paying attention to that at some level in our minds as we're reading. I'll tell you what really cued go, clued go, go, go. me into that was the, um, the little green serpent that crosses the path of the mm-hmm. donkey. It feels when like he's, a throwaway. What's that? It feels like a throwaway because it's right in the middle of the chapter or so, and we get that section break, and then the next section begins with that, as I recall. Yeah, yeah. And it feels it just, consequential, but it's not. Mm-hmm. And there was no reason that it was, there's there was no reason to mention it if there was not some sort of an allusion to the serpent in the garden. Right. Well, I love what you said, Heidi, too, about the idea of, of um, he's, the priest is riding away from persecution. He's riding mm-hmm. on this donkey into the jungle away from the persecution um, and Christ rode towards the persecution. And that calls back to mind that passage. So I believe it's towards the end. Um, okay. It's on, for me, it's on 97. So it's towards the end of the chapter and he's, he's thinking about the mestiza. I think that's a, I don't know how you actually say that, but um, it, the man is confessing things, you know, I, I haven't, I haven't fasted at Lent and I told lies and all those things. And then he says, the priest is thinking, he says that he had an immense self-importance. He was unable to picture a world of which he was only a typical part, a world of treachery, violence, and lust in which his shame was altogether insignificant. How often the priest had heard the same confession. Man was so limited, he hadn't even the ingenuity to invent a new vice. The animals knew as much. It was for this world that Christ had died. The more evil you saw and heard about you, the greater glory lay around the death. It was too easy to die for what was good or beautiful for home or children or civilization. It needed a God to die for the half-hearted and the corrupt. And he said, why do you tell me all this? So the idea that like Christ would, he would go towards the persecution 
to die. Only, only Christ would do that. Mm-hmm. Only Christ would go towards the persecution and die for such a world as this, for such a place as this. Um, whereas everyone else would leave it and, you know, maybe they would die for something beautiful, but they wouldn't die for something, um, dark and, and, right. you know, what's seemingly irredeemable. Yeah. And I think that what you just read, David, is the closest thing to a thesis of this entire novel. That that is for this world that Christ had died. It's too easy to die for what's good and beautiful. It needed a God to die for the half-hearted and the corrupt. And that, I think, is a summing up of, of, this, of this novel. And we've, we can even see that in this first part of the book. It, it goes, goes you guys, up. you guys, um, I'm kind of, I'm thinking about what you're saying and I'm thinking about what we mentioned in the first podcast that Graham Greene visited Mexico. He in fact did not like Mexico at all. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if for him, I mean, I'm, we would advise our students to tread cautiously with what I'm about, where I'm about to tread. But I wonder if Graham Greene, if it was a little bit easier for him to think about, well, Jesus came for Great Britain, where we have rolling hills and soft meadows and a parliamentary system. And, <laughs> but to go and be confronted with just how difficult Mexico was when he visited. I would call it, I would think that that would cause you to rethink your Catholicism. Mm. If you had a picture of like, um, I don't know that, that God came to save some people that, you know, have accomplished quite a bit in this world, the British, mm-hmm. this sounds terribly, I hope this doesn't sound, um, I don't know, ethnocentric. It probably just is ethnocentric is why I'm worried about it saying it's sounding that way. Um, well, you're but like, Go ahead. Mexico at the time is so underdeveloped. It's in the grip of, or the growing grip of this communist state. Um, Even the weather seems to drive Graham Greene crazy. It's such an oppressive force. And for him to think, oh, wow. God actually came for this place just as much as he came for Britain. What does that say about God? What does that say about Jesus? What does that say about um, the nature of redemption? It's not always a... (sighs) Jesus did not ride on a donkey's back into um, a a glorious... Westminster um, Abbey. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of saying it. He didn't ride into Westminster Abbey. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you. You, you, you saved what I was trying to say. I didn't quite know where I was going. (laughs) Well, and to add to that, even just on the literary level, there's, we talked a lot in the first podcast about the land being like a character, like this dry, arid place. And again, we see that happening here with the tangle and um, and the decay of the jungle with the, with the rank and tepid water, you know, nothing the, is life giving in this land. Go ahead. I just think the mosquitoes, the disease that they bring. Yes. 
referenced yes. a lot. Well, and then exactly. So we have this setting, and then we have this, as you just brought up, David, this motif of decay throughout the whole book, not in the land itself, uh, in the church, uh, in and then in the bodies of the characters. Uh, Mrs. Fellows, who's always has a headache, and she's always under the mosquito netting, which is um, like this symbol of death covering her, right? Like in, and then you also have Mr. Tench and how he's stomach is always hurting and his digestion is failing and he's and trying to he, fix people's teeth who are rotten and the rotten teeth yes uh, and the and the priest has rotten teeth and mr tench says in chapter one i see death in this man he doesn't know he's a priest though so there's this this motif of decay and then this arid landscape in which nothing can grow and when it does grow it's diseased and and that fits perfectly with what you're saying if I was a post-colonial critic, I would focus right on that, right? This, yeah. this, this third world country and, and what ca- can faith thrive here? Um, and then, you know, the sister novel, well, not really intentionally a sister novel, but another no- novel which tackles this in a different cultural context is the novel Silence. And that, it's that yeah. same idea of the land, is the land conducive? Is this culture, is this place conducive to this Western faith? Yeah, and for those who don't know, that's the Endo novel from, I believe, the 80s, Shusaku mm-hmm. Endo. There's a recent movie made of it. Yep, yep, Martin Scorsese. Uh, and th- so a lot of novels kind of take this theme of can Christianity or whatever faith thrive in a, in a land um, that has no, that ha- that is troubled or doesn't have wealth in the same way that it did in, in Europe? Well, uh, I mean, this is a huge theme for a lot of Graham Greene's work. I mean, you see it mm-hmm. even in The Quiet American, which is a which is from the 50s or the 60s, I think. I, I think the late 50s, maybe. And it's kind of like a, it's taking place in the early di- sta- stages of the Vietnam conflict. So a lot of these same themes of, you know, colonialism and things like that are popping up and then being intertwined with these uh, spiritual and the spiritual themes that he's kind of obsessed with. And the idea of, uh, you know, even the the idea of um, dying for culture. I think for mm-hmm. for Green, there's this there's this constant there's this constant question of like the relationship between decaying cultures. Um, the, the decaying cultures is a is a consistent stand-in for decay of not a stand-in, but a consistent metaphor for um, the decaying spiritual spirituality. Huh. Um, you even right. see it in like his spy novels, like a novel like The Third Man, which is a short novel. It takes place right after World War II in Vienna. It's all bombed out. And you've got all these different people, these different countries that are kind of fighting over it in a way. Um, and then at the core of it is this sort of criminal mastermind. And even in there, this, the decay of the culture is, a, is representative of, of the decay of the spiritual um, the spiritual culture, the decay of the physical culture, the bombed out, these bombed out beautiful buildings that are constant, that are staring at them all the time represent the decay of the spiritual life. And I mean, it's a little on the nose to put it that way, but um, it's a constant theme for him. And I think that that, that that's something that he's, um, he's even here when he's looking at a culture, well, the culture, I mean, there is actually a quite a, now that I'm saying this, I'm realizing that, you know, in Mexico and particularly in Catholic Mexico, there is this great, um, cultural tradition. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that that's important, really important to acknowledge that, that 
that Catholicism is native or indigenous within the culture of of Mexico um, in a different way than it is in Europe, but it's just as powerful a cultural force there. It's not the same as say, I brought up silence, but it's not a one-to-one correlative because in silence, we're talking about mission, Catholic missionaries going to Japan and which and and the culture there is completely different. But here we right, do right. have a religion that's tied very deeply uh, into the culture, into the people, into their psyches. Um, and so, what happens when you with when, mm-hmm. what happens to a collective psyche when the culture eliminates from itself its most essential? Um, right. Yes. Aspect. Which is where we get the decay motif, right? And to your point, we have. And I'm going to stop talking after this because I feel like I want to hear, I'm I'm talking too much, but this idea of the individual characters with the decay in their bodies, right? If that's like the inner circle of interpretation, we have a second circle surrounding that in which you can interpret the society, right? The decay within the society to what you just said. And then around that is a third circle kind of holding it all together, the universal idea of what happens when faith fails in the world, And if you're looking at these three levels of interpretation, I mean, really makes this novel just masterful. Similarly, I think it does the same. I think it it mirrors that. No, it's not. It's just the only thing Uh you're choosing to say right now. Um, I think the way he layers the characters might be similar to that. I'll have to think about that, but it's just, it's possible in terms of uh, maybe on the outside is the priest representing that outside mm-hmm. layer that you're talking about and then maybe tension some of the other ones or you know i have to think about maybe they're the second circle and then in the inner circle is where maybe the lieutenant and jose and things like that are mm. i have to th- i have to we have to draw this out and yeah 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 <laughs> yes. it's hard to talk about books without visual structures sometimes i want to just start drawing on a whiteboard right now <laughs> so hey i've i've been thinking um as i read this book about the nature of missionary work and forgive me, this is going to feel like a discursus into an obscure land, but I will do my best to bring it back. Tim's Um, Tim's taking us on an obscurus into an, into obscurity. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's like your, your autobiography should be titled obscurus into obscurity. (laughs) Some of the writing work that I do, uh, I will not mention any organizations on the air, but I work for a company that helps do um, large dollar fundraising events for nonprofit organizations. And many of the nonprofit organizations are Christian organizations. And the Christian nonprofits that I write for are for the, they are for the most part, very well established they've been doing what they've been doing for a long time and they've been very successful at it. And some of the people that I interview are, we would call, they are reluctant to use the word missionary to describe what they do because of all of the associations, positive and negative around missionary. But that's kind of what they are. They just are not wearing, like when I think, missionary this is i don't know this is maybe like more from novels than i don't know any sort of lived experience but i think the first thing that comes to my mind is sort of uh british a gray woolen british business suit with a bowler hat walking through a jungle is seriously the picture that comes to my mind 
Hmm. The people that I interview, none of them are remotely close to that. Um, and all of them are very, very, uh, very sophisticated in their view about the relationship between the work that they do and the, and the culture that they are in, especially when it's not their own culture. Um, which also is kind of like breaks my kind of picture of what a missionary is that the that the, the missionary, like the, the missionary is sort of an exporter of Western culture as much as it's a, the missionary is an exporter of the Christian religion, the people that I talk to, that is so not the case. And, um, I feel, I just felt like mentioning that because we're in another situation in this book, the power and the glory where the indigenous culture once rich and flourishing is beginning to flounder the indigenous priest is kind of functioning like a missionary on behalf of that, um, of Christianity, which was in the very center of that once flourishing culture. But I think it's really interesting that he, Graham Greene is very sophisticated in that he is not making the priest, the mouthpiece of that culture. He's just the mouthpiece. He's just the representative of Catholicism of the Christian religion. And I think that that is, um, I suspect that when this book was published 1947, that was, that was probably ahead of its time. Mm -hmm. Um, that was probably not a picture that most people would have recognized. I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of stumbling. I have like a lot of big thoughts and they're just not, um, I don't know that they're articulatable right now. Just one other thought before I go, I'm listening to, before I go, like, I'm just going to like walk off the podcast into the sunset. <laughs> Better be good. Um, no pressure. <laughs> Last word. I, I was security. I was listening to a podcast. Uh, Joe Klein does a podcast and he was interviewing Bill Gates, Microsoft, Bill Gates. Um, Bill Gates has Bill Gates and Melinda Gates run a large foundation and that foundation is really concerned with education in impoverished um, communities, but also just poverty in impoverished communities. So Bill Gates comes on, he's being interviewed and uh, he's talking about, he, there's this, there's this real excitement many years ago that the, that the, gosh, I think the poverty rate worldwide had dropped from 26% to 9%. And if you ask me like, what are the dates in which it dropped? I couldn't tell you, but it, it dropped in a relatively short amount of time. I mean, it's not like three years, but you know, like a generation or something like this. So philanthropists were really, really excited. Bill Gates comes on and he's saying that there's a little, there's, there's, they're worrying again because some of the governments and infrastructure in these um, other countries are proving to be unstable and they're afraid that the poverty rate is going to jump back up again. 
And then he said something else. And it was so fascinating. He said, and one of the other things that we're discovering is how powerful people's narrative about themselves as a community is such a defining feature of their own progress. And I, and he said, and I was like, okay, what's the narrative? Surely it's religion. And of course he says that narrative is driven primarily by religion. And then I was like, okay, what happens next? Because this is like the big, this is the, one of the things that's facing the West now. There's all of this money and technology and expertise in the West, but there's no story anymore. The story mm-hmm. has been just drained off the West. So um, Charles Taylor, this incredible philosopher, published about mm, five years ago, a book called A Secular Age, in which he's basically arguing how, we've mentioned this on the air before, how in 1500 was belief in God not only plausible, it was it was almost implausible to not believe in theism. And yeah, now 500 years later, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. 500 years later, the exact opposite is the case. So instead of the plausibility structure of the modern West is such that you have to opt into theism rather than in 1500, you would have to opt out. And so Bill Gates, I really was so excited for him to say, how is the West going to address this issue where people around the world that are um, suffering impoverishment, that are really dealing with serious level poverty and have a story that is almost always a religious story that they tell themselves, what is the West's approach going to be in those places. And he didn't touch it. I mean, it just, for me, I don't want to like try to read Bill Gates bond. I was just like, I feel like he is going into what close reads does really, really consistently. It's like, you have to look at the story that's being Avoiding told. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think that he couldn't, I don't think that he, yeah. he's a brilliant man to make the most obvious statement in the world. But I think where he feels at home is it's analytics and it's data and to tell and to try to kind of like understand how a big sweeping narrative, what happens when that big sweeping narrative comes in contact with another one. That's something I think he was just like, man, I don't know that I'm ready to talk about that yet. So, um, I think we, I think this brings us back to the book though. I I like that you Mm -hmm. mentioned this because, because I think that, it's, well, I think this brings us to the lieutenant because I think what the lieutenant mm-hmm. and the red shirts are trying to do is eliminate that narrative. They're mm-hmm. trying to eliminate the story mm-hmm. that they tell themselves, they tell about themselves that they participate in. Um, they, and, you know, they're, they're eliminating the churches, right? They're eliminating mm-hmm. the gravestones, for goodness sake. Yeah. And they're eliminating the, um, you know, people have to hide the mementos of that of the of the stories that they told themselves that that by which that they by which they created and sustained culture yes they're trying to do is eliminate a cultural memory yes and in eliminating a cultural memory they i mean you i mean in some ways it seems like they're trying to create poverty because it eliminates it it eliminates memory. that that might be taking it too far but it's pretty clear that they the, the lieutenant and people around him are trying to eliminate that sort of cultural memory 
by which the religion um, and the religious standards by which the people lived. Um, I don't know where my, I don't know. I don't know what the subject of that sentence was, but they're trying to eliminate all that because that's what, <laughs> yeah, props, yeah. That's what props up the way of life that they want to eliminate so that they can create something new. Um, and the only, and that, that in and of itself, whether you kill a, one person or not is an act of violence mm-hmm. yeah. so to think about the world and to operate in that, in that way is, is inherently violent. Right. And it's easy to think of the Lieutenant as not really part of the West because um, he's a Mexican communist, but that, the the thing that you're talking about, this sort of, um, I want to say the expunging of the cultural narrative that the lieutenant is adamant about. I mean, he is adamant about getting rid of this stuff and like saving the children. I mean, you know, in quotes, saving the children. That to me is so much a part of the West. I think for the West, what the lieutenant is doing in the story is a very active approach. He is going into these little villages. He is passing by graveyards and he's thinking, I'm going to forcibly get rid of this narrative. I think in the West, there's enough momentum, at least in Seattle, Washington, and in Eugene, Oregon, there's enough cultural momentum um, to just to kind of like be free of that past narrative that it's not really even an active choice anymore. It's more of a passive choice. We're just going to let the momentum carry us farther away from the kind of story that we used to live a generation or a hundred years ago. Right. Right. Well, and the plausibility structure idea is super important in this novel that this is to y'all's point. This is why the townspeople are willing to be martyred for the sake of the priest. Yeah. Right. It's not because they love the priest. They know they keep telling Mm -hmm. We Maria keeps telling him, we know you're a bad priest. Right. It is not because they love this man, but it's because their roots, their cultural memory, their faith is so deep that it will not allow them to betray the priest. They will mm-hmm. die for him. And that he sees that and it adds and compounds his, to his shame because he knows again to to all the way back to chapter one, that he is unworthy of it, that he, the man is unworthy of it, but he doesn't have a name in the story, right? He's not a man. He's a priest. Like this is one of, again, one of those deep paradoxes within that first circle of that, of the story, this deep, he's, he's a man full of shame, full of sin. And yet he is also a priest and a representative of this cultural memory that, I mean, they can't, the Lieutenant and what he represents cannot shake in this generation in Mexico. Yeah. Hmm. And yeah, and that's why they have to focus. That's why the Lieutenant, um, right. Is so yes. he, he, we, we get so many scenes where he is interacting fondly with children from the boy right. well, churchyard to the girl, yeah. to the daughter in this chapter. So if you could see me, I am stand. I just stood up and like raised my hands because the, you're exactly, you, you brought it. Heidi, exactly. you, want you want to say something? I'm so excited about what you just said, because the very next thing I was going to say is that's why children are so important in this novel. 
That's why so many main characters are children. That's it is this battle for the souls and the hearts and the minds and the imaginations of the children that matters. That is everything in this novel. Hmm. Even though the priest is the protagonist and the main character, right? Hmm. That it is the children who matter. It is that's why he needed to be a father, and that's why he needed to have a child. That's why right? Coral's there. That's why Luis is there. Like within the structure of the novel, none of this matters unless they can get. Depending, it's who gets to the kids, and that's why that it determines Lu- whether or not this cultural memory is lost. And what we're seeing in that the, the the bit in the first in part one that we talked about last week, when 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 the Lewis's father says, "You don't remember any of this." Yes, you know he is sensing the tragedy of that. He's recognizing that you don't remember the days when the church provided the culture. Like he basically Mm -hmm. says exactly that: the church was our culture. The church gave your mother things to do, Um, Mm -hmm. and and he says, but you don't remember any of that, and and he's mourning that. The other thing that I'm thinking of while we're on this theme is. I just think back to the lieutenant letting those kids play. He hands them His the gun. gun. Yeah. Yes. And he says, there's the safety latch. Turn uh-huh. it off. You know, you can yep. flip the safety latch. And I'm, you're sitting there and it's not, it's a very, it, it feels like a sort of natural occurrence in the story because the point of view is so closely in that moment with the lieutenant. Um, right. That it's a little bit, it's sympathetic. I felt sympathetic, like, oh, this is not a big deal. And then I take a step back and I'm like, he just handed kids the gun, a gun, kids who have never seen a gun, much less held one before. And he taught them how to turn the safety latch off. You're like, Man, I don't know about that is uh, gun etiquette. I don't know that that's the, the best <laughs> thing to do. But it's for Graham Greene, what a great picture mm-hmm. of the lieutenant's view versus the priest's view. Right. That the gun is this symbol of violence. He is passing off. Yeah. And in communism, power is everything. Like there is just this constant, these binaries between the powerless and the powerful. And let's give Mm. in best case scenario, the, in the ideology of communism, it's let's give the power to the people. Right. Yeah only power without if you're a materialist the only power is in violence that's the only way you can ever ever enforce even if you're an idealist as the lieutenant is Mm -hmm. so in giving a gun to a child this is this i mean this this symbol of the kind of world that the lieutenant wants to give to the next generation but he thinks he's giving them a gift yeah yeah Hmm. I feel like you guys brought brought me back from the long discursus into the the blasted heath, and I just want to thank you both for salvaging that because I was like, I don't know where I'm going. It just feels like <laughs> the long the long discursus feels, is that what you said? Yeah, and, and I. You helped bring it, David, you brought it back to the subject. And I was like, oh, good, thank you. Because I knew the subject was there. I just was not articulating where it was there. Like I so said. It's very relevant. Yeah. Well, like I said, your autobiography should be called The Long Discursus into Obscurity. That's just so... <laughs> I mean, a little bit. 
a little bit sad. It's a little really mean. Just it is a little bit sad. <laughs> I think David think David is like knows that I'm going to drift into senility when I'm, you know, like at a, at a really early we'll be, age. I'll be there for you. <laughs> well, and one more thing to add to that, to what you were talking about, Tim, is that um, you did, there's a lot of talk within, it, you know, your point about nonprofits. There's a lot of talk within the church in America about the white savior myth, right? Like this, right. we're going to go and we're going to impose this faith along with this culture. And we don't want to do that. How do we do just, how do we get to near Christianity without all of the Western trappings that we probably don't even know that we are bringing with us? Right. Yeah. So that, how, how do we repent of this white savior myth? And that, I think is a really important subject, but not necessarily the subject in the power and the glory because they are indigenous people, right? These right. are, these are Mexicans who are going. And one criticism that I have read in, um, of this novel is that Graham Greene doesn't try very hard to make his characters Mexican. He's so focused on their ideology of whether they're a person of faith or a, or or a or a materialist represented by the lieutenant and the priest, right? That he doesn't seem to to put a lot of thought into their Mexicanness. And I have read that as as criticism of this novel. Um, and of course, there's various responses or rebuttals to that. But in some ways, that's the entire point, right? He is saying these people are part of this culture. Nobody's trying to come in and change it. The white characters are not even connected with the Mexican culture at all. They're in, ins they're insulated from it. Um, mm -hmm. you know, the Lieutenant goes to the fellows banana plantation and isn't even allowed on the porch. So, um, and, and it's very clear in the, in the narrative that he's resistant to that, that he hates that about them, but he can't do anything about it. But both yeah. the protagonist and the antagonist are Mexicans. They are within this culture. They're, nobody's coming in to try to change it. And I, I do think that's important for this novel. And that's one of the reasons why it works, is that one of them yeah. isn't white. Yeah. Hmm. I, mean, the, I was thinking about the ways that I think this relates to that. The ways that uh, Jose versus the whiskey, no, Father, yeah, Father Jose, right? Uh huh. Compares to the whiskey priest. Um, what ways are they similar and what ways are they different? Um, and I was thinking it'd be worth talking about that for a few minutes because I think that it can give us some perspective on both of them. Yeah. There was some talk about how do we, what kind of, how do we respond to Father Jose and the Lieutenant and each of these characters? There was some talk about that on Facebook. So I got to thinking, and are we is are we responding to to the whiskey priest maybe more positively than Father Jose, for example, because we know him more, we're inside his head more, or or is there something actually more noble, more worthy of our respect than Father Jose? Um, and we haven't spent a lot of time with Father Jose yet, but I'm curious at this point, can we identify similarities and differences? Like what, what similarities can we identify between the two of them that can help us understand what Graham Greene's doing with the whiskey? Yeah. Tim, what do you think about that? I, I love the question. And I'm tempted to try to highlight all of the differences between them because... Yeah, that's why I, I didn't ask that part first. That's the easy part, I feel like. Yeah. Um, I think they are so similar. I mean, so similar in almost every way, except 
it's, it, I might even say that this is the only difference. Um, Father Jose has at some point kind of tumbled into despair. And I know that the, the um, how do I say it? The narrative set has him kind of wrestling with despair, but I think as far as his actions go, he seems like he's almost already living in despair. And I think that the whiskey priest is still wrestling against it. Hmm. So he's allowed, he's been overcome. He's kind of allowed himself to settle into despair. Jose has. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And I think, um, he's again, given, the narrative, the last thing that we led, the last thing that we read about father Jose is he's still, he kind of acknowledges that he is trying to resist despair. But I think from, for practical purposes, I don't want to say he's given up, but I think that he is, he's falling in that direction. And I think that the whiskey priest is trying to fall in the opposite direction, but he's the whiskey priest is struggling with it, is wrestling with it just as much as father Jose is. Do you, Heidi, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah. Well, I think that the way that that is practically played out is the fact that father Jose is, um, married and has renounced the faith and doesn't perform the sacraments anymore. Um, and the whiskey priest is on the run and trying to escape, which goes to one of the major motifs and themes of the novel, which is escape. What does it mean to escape? Right. So, um, and every character in this novel is trying to escape. Um, so the, the priest is doing it by becoming a fugitive. Um, and Padre Jose is trying to escape by, as you pointed out, Tim, just giving up on his, priestness but the way that they're similar is that they can't he can't still like he he's he has given into despair because he still believes so he knows that in denying the prayer at this young child's grave that he's condemning her soul to hell Mm. and he does it anyway at least in catholic doctrine right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he does it anyway and then and then because of that, and he knows that every night he goes to bed with this woman, he is breaking his vow and condemning himself to mortal sin every single time. And he still believes, which is why he's in despair. And the whiskey priest still believes uh, as well. And yet his, he is just in hell, right? Like he's wandering around starving and, and, and being hunted. And so, like you said, there's so many similarities and yet their outward and inner life is oriented in opposite directions in their attempts to escape the oppression of this regime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For me, inward orientation is everything. Everything. I mean, it is everything. And (laughs) I feel like I haven't, some of the authors that I have been most transformed by Christian authors, this is the thing that they harp on more than anything else is um, sometimes we, we believe the wrong things. Sometimes we believe the right things. Sometimes we hurt other people. Sometimes we love other people. And if you're keeping a kind of tally of yourself, 
with regards to, okay, if I've done more good things or more bad things, you will make yourself insane. And it's not, there's no freedom there. But if your heart is primarily concerned with what is my inward orientation, what is the direction of the arrow of my life? If that's what your chief preoccupation is, that's what, that's what it should be. That's what it should be. And it seems to me like freedom is freedom lies there. And I think Graham Greene does a wonderful job of painting these picture, these, these two priests as doubles of each other, as mirrors of each other. Yes. But for this one narrow difference. And for me, that narrow difference that you just articulated, Heidi is everything Though yes. on the outside, it looks so similar. Yep. It's true. Hmm. Well, and you brought up the issue of doubling what happens with the priest and almost every character in this. He's kind of this linchpin, right? And and as he almost all of his interactions, if we, I mean not across the board, but almost all of them are one-on-one throughout the novel. And so mm-hmm. you get to see the priest and the impact that he makes. Um, and some of, some of them as inverted mirrors and some of them as mirror, you know, some of them very similar, but there is a lot of doubling with the priest, um, that Padre Jose is like, this would be a different novel without him in it. We need this, the structure of this novel demands a counter, a counterpoint to the priest that is, uh, walking who, who is actually reasoning. Existing. It, it kind of requires a character who has given in in order to see, to contrast those two responses to the regime. Yeah. And so Padre Jose is that, is, is that in the novel and it works yeah. beautifully. And even in this few, that one time that we've met him so far, you see what it is like to the Catholic soul. And you pointed out the last time we talked to him, how this, this novel emerged first in the Catholic imagination and, and you yeah. see that in Padre Jose, maybe more just so just with such pathos, right? Like you can't escape this. This has formed him. This is mm-hmm. now who he is, you know, that it's, he is ontologically a priest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. He's not vocationally or occupationally yes. a priest. He's ontologically a priest. Yes. Um, could I j- just say a mention, like as far as um, thinking about doubling, uh, one of the masters of literary doubling is Dostoevsky. And the way that Dostoevsky uses doubling almost always, in fact, every time that I think of his use of a double, he is describing a character like Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment. And he will bring Raskolnikov's double kind of onto the stage. And his double is basically Raskolnikov 10, 15, 20 years in the future if Raskolnikov does not change. And so Svigrigailov is um, Raskolnikov's double in A Crime and Punishment. And Svita Gailov is this, um, he has the same ideology as Raskolnikov, but he's just kind of been at it for longer. And something happens in that Raskolnikov 
can sort of see himself in the future as this other character and there's something repulsive about it. He kind of just thinks, okay, I'm on a train that will take me to that destination. And am I going to continue? Am I going to do that? Or am I not going to do that? So for Dostoevsky, the use of doubling is sort of, you, we get a chronological glimpse into the future of a character mm-hmm. by seeing their double. I think with Graham Greene, he's put these doubles together in the exact same time and place. We don't know either of their futures. You know, it's not a comparison like whiskey priest. If you keep living like this, you're going to end up like father Jose. That's not really what he's doing. He's just putting them side by side. Um, I don't know, maybe to highlight the, the stakes, it seems to me, the stakes that each are fighting for. I do love the, the, the way he, juxtaposes um the movement versus the sort of stasis so jose is not really going anywhere right and the whiskey priest is constantly on the move we talked about that earlier and so i think that in that way that juxtaposition um offers some Hmm. thematic characterization you know like it opens up so many of the themes through the way he presents those two so i think they are at in some ways they're at different places in the journey so to speak but Mm. they're at different places in the journey not because of not because of the passing of time but because of the choices that they've made and i was thinking a lot about how um I, i kept coming back to the idea while i was reading this that this is a chapter that is constantly coming back to like the age old question, what do I do next? And he, even the priest is constantly asked constantly over and over again, practically on every page asking uh, himself, what do I do now? What right. is the best? What should uh, I do right now? So like this, this is a great book for lost tools of writing, right? This is the, the quintessential question of any story <laughs> is what do I do next? And green is just taking this very basic question of what do I do next? And he's building so many layers around it that make it complicated. The question itself is simple. What do I do in this moment right now? when the Lieutenant is in the town and all these people are being threatened and he's threatening to take a captive, do I turn myself in or do I not? Do I look up so that the person, so that no one, so that people can betray me without it being so difficult? Or do I, do I, do I stay in proudly? Do I, do I ask that? Do I, do I um, hear the confession of the Mestiza or do I not? Do I trust him or do I not? Every page, there's some kind of question like that. And so the fact that the whiskey priest is in action, he's in motion, he's moving somewhere. Mm -hmm. He's constantly butting up against that question in a new, maybe a new way, at least to a matter of degree. Whereas father Jose is, it's the same question that is beating him over the head over and over again. And it's a question about um, his own. um, It's more of a question of his own commitment. Mm -hmm. Um, He's like, what, what are the options for him to do? He either, I just think that's really interesting the way he, the way green is bombarding us with the questions of what should the whiskey priest do in contrast with, and it's because of his action in contrast to father Jose's sort of languidness. Yeah. What a great word to describe him, David. Languidity. What's the languidity? I don't know. Languor. Languor. Yeah. Languor. Right. It'd be languor. Yeah. Huh? Huh? Does Langer end? Can you make Langer end with E O U S? Langurious. I guess languidity. Langular. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, do you lang- 
<laughs> what did you, like, what was the word you just said, Heidi? Well, I made it up. Langer? It's not a real word. Lang- right. I said langular. But a langer is an actual word. That's the ver that's the right, noun right. of languid. Yeah. I'm just imagining what langular means. And so I think it means lying down in a geometrical pattern. <laughs> right? I think that's what it would mean. So playing twister. Right. <laughs> to be really relaxed right because yeah you're gonna be way better when you're relaxed hey i have a question for you guys about the priest i know we don't have a ton of time left tim's got things to do heidi and i presume i have things to do too i'm really important um so so um do you do you think that the whiskey priest is noble Hmm. tim why don't you field that one first since you have so many things to do (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah just get it over with and get on you you gotta get this if you want to be out here and do something better if the concept of uh, the concept of nobility is often used um as a cult as cultural praise um he Beowulf is noble because he stands high in the community of Anglo-Saxon Vikings, you know? Um, And I think if that's what we mean by nobility, then no, the whiskey priest is perhaps the most ignoble character in the book. One of the most ignoble characters and ignoble protagonists in 20th century literature. But if nobility is an internal virtue that he has integrity in that he is pursuing the will of God according to his best understanding. Oh, he's a very noble character. So you're saying it comes down to definition. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think it's funny. I have arguments with your dad in my head sometimes, and I can just imagine your dad. <laughs> and that's a compliment to your dad. Cause I'm like, okay, what Don't would Andrew, Andrew is going to say, <laughs> well, nobility is neither an internal nor an external virtue. You know, I don't even really know what your dad would say, but, um, everyone I think would uh, like agree with my second definition of nobility. But I think in actual practice, people use the word noble and nobility Pretty often in the first, according to my first definition, it's a term of communal praise. Mm-hmm. Golly, I, that was the most scholastic I, answer ever. Oh, I love it. Reading, reading I, your Aquinas, huh? Yeah. yeah, right. Speaking of the dumb ox. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, according to your two definitions, and if the the... I I heartily agree. Ignobility in the sense of um, dignity, public dignity, um, mm-hmm. and and even a, no, a in, nobleman. Yes. Yeah. yeah right. Right. Public right, dignity is way, a perfect. That's a perfect attachment to like definition one that I gave. Public. Right. Yeah. Um, and even in his choices, like he is he has made some very ignoble choices in his life that haunt him and, and that he continues to make that, that do erode his dignity in the, in the novel. And so, um, 
no, but um, for the, you, you've both read um, Norms of Nobility, right? Probably like a hundred yeah. times. So, and and I know a lot no of our readers have. He has read it a hundred times. He has. <laughs> um, so I, I keep thinking in this book about, as I read this book and I have the last few times I've read it, since reading Norms and Nobility, I keep thinking that this book is the, maybe the greatest example in English literature of the power of what David Hicks and Norms and Nobility calls the tyrannizing image. Um, That, which is a concept from the ancients. I think it's Isocrates. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I'm not capable of correcting you if you're wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Well, someone correct me if it is not Isocrates. Um, But David Hicks expounds on this idea that one of the great purposes of a classical education is to put in the minds of students and of human souls um, an image in which they are constantly striving to meet throughout their life and feel a sense of shame if they do not meet it. Yeah. And that that is... And that, that image of virtue that we all have in our minds, that I, to be a courageous person that, you know, if a, a, a boy allows a girl to be insulted on the playground and does nothing about it, that he feels like he was a coward, right? Yeah. I should have said something like that, that sense of this image that is tyrannical in our souls that, that tells us what virtue is and demands that we rise to that. I think this novel is the greatest example of that in English literature that I can think of. And that that is what rules the priest throughout this novel. And he knows that he cannot meet it and that he does not meet it. And yet he can, it, it, Padre Jose attempts to abandon it and thus destroys his own soul. Yeah. However, the priest, if you look at the actions from the outside, you see a, a broken man who still can't give up on the tyrannizing image under the most extreme duress and that I think is nobility. That I think is how I define nobility. That's the tyrannizing image for me, which is why I have great affection for the priest and why I love this novel. Hmm. That calls to mind the bit where he's, this is on 101 for me, so I'm very close to the end. He um, He's thinking about how sometimes instructing children in the old days, he'd been asked by some uh, black some black lozenge-eyed Indian child, what is God like? Mm -hmm. And he would answer facilely with references to the father and the mother, or perhaps more ambitiously, he would include brother and sister and try to give some idea of all loves and relationships combined in an immense and yet personal passion. But then he says this, and this I think is speaking to that idea of a tyrannizing image. Mm -hmm. But at the center of his own faith, there always stood the convincing mystery that we are made in God's image. God was the parent, Mm. but he was also the policeman, the criminal, the priest, the maniac, and the judge. Something resembling God dangled from the gibbet or went into odd attitudes before the bullets in a prison yard or contorted itself like a camel in the attitude of sex. He would sit in the confessional and hear the complicated, dirty ingenuities which God's image had thought out, and God's image shook now, up and down on the mule's back, with the yellow teeth sticking out over the lower lip, and God's image did its despairing act of rebellion with Maria in the hut among the rats. He said, Do you feel better now? not so cold, eh, or, or so hot, and pressed his hand with a kind of driven tenderness upon the shoulders of God's image. Oh, just like almost makes me want to weep every time. Hmm. That's exactly it. That's the perfect quote. That's why I think the priest is noble. 
And to kind of tie it into our earlier conversation about the power of narrative of having a community or individuals envision themselves as part of a story. Um, the, the ideal type or the tyrannizing image belongs in a story. And so, um, Mm -hmm. for the whiskey priest, what's the story that he's in? Oh, well, we hear it when he meets the mestizo, he even names the other character. He names who the mestizo is in the story. Yes. It's Judas. He's met Judas, yes. you know? And, and so, so now, oh my gosh, it's, it's so powerful. So mm-hmm. now the whiskey priest, having taken on this tyrannizing image, this ideal type has now met his betrayer and like Jesus meeting his betrayer, he knows now what he has to do, but he has to treat Judas with dignity and respect. He has to treat the mestizo who's going to betray him with yes. dignity and respect. He, he like has to live out this narrative, even though he knows he's going to be betrayed in the end. Right. And he knows he'll fail it. It still rules him. I think that that's what makes him so beautiful to me and so noble because I, I relate to that. Like, I know I will fail the tyrannizing image. I don't know what I would do if I was in the shoes of the priest, but he, he walks with bleeding feet with the mestizo draped over the back. He is the good Samaritan in that. Mm. little moment right there's mm-hmm. these he's weeping when they are because he's so tired and he's had nothing to eat and when he's in the village and he's just weeping but he drags himself out of bed to hear their confessions and he hates them for it but it's the tyrannizing image that does it through him yeah right? yeah that's nobility that's so yeah i think he's one of the most noble characters in literature but not in the sense of public dignity like we talked right. about it'd be an interesting question to ask um young people is, is Jesus noble? Yeah. Good question. You know, cause huh. <laughs> it's like one of those Sunday school questions. I know that I should not say no, but somehow I don't know that that was the word that I would choose to describe. Sure sounds like a squirrel. Sure. Sounds like a squirrel. But I didn't <laughs> <use it. laughs> right. Well, hmm. Uh, I, what do you well, think, David? So no, I, I, agree, I agree with what you all are saying. Uh, one of the things I was thinking about is how you, earlier I mentioned the idea of this, what the, the idea of what should I do? He's constantly being faced mm-hmm. with the necessity to make choices. And so the two words that kept, the two questions that kept coming up to me as I was reading were in the face of these questions and these decisions he has to make, is he noble and is he faithful? Hmm. So do we think that he's a f- faithful priest or we can, Maybe he's not a faithful priest. I don't. It depends on how you want to put it. But is he, is he faithful and is he noble? And I don't. Then some in some ways, the answer would there'd be some, some overlapping there on our uh, on our chart of faithfulness versus our chart of nobility. Of course, there's little areas where those two circles, you know, overlap. But then I got to thinking about, in if you are faithful and if you are noble. And if we can sort of agree for the sake of conversation, at least that he is noble, then in the face of those questions is the ne- the necessary existence, the inherent necessary existence of guilt. 
and, and we're seeing that you know in him because yes. if you make the wrong decision or if there is the possibility that the wrong decision is either going to be made or has been made then you are racked with guilt mm. uh, right and that's what he is that's what he is enduring so part of his part of his journey into the jungle is the idea of guilt and i believe that that is why the snake is there in part because there's First, he sees the snake off in the trees or whatever. But then when he gets down on the ground, you remember at the end of the chapter when he gets down on the ground so the mestizo can ride? He starts thinking that he's seeing snakes around or something like that. Um, and it's like they're off there on the side of the path. They might be there. And the, there's the possibility that that snake could attack him, so to speak. And that, the, that possibility um, is 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 kind of haunts him in the same way that guilt seems to haunt him both the guilt at the prospect that he might do the wrong thing and he wants to do the wrong thing um and then and then also the reality that he has at times done the wrong thing so guilt is that i think guilt is one of those things that is constantly at war with nobility and faithfulness hmm. in, in this in, in particular in this character but i think that's probably true of all of us i think that's probably yeah is not not unique to the priest. I think it might be a inherent aspect of the spiritual life. Right. Yeah. Right. right. I wonder, I mean, this is going to open a whole can of worms, but going back to what you said, Heidi, about um, the tyrannizing image. I mean, I, I think part of the reason that that very notion is so hard to accept culturally mm-hmm. outside of a Christian classical education is because there's no mechanism for doing anything when the, with the guilt when you fail to meet the tyrannizing image. Right. Whereas with Christianity, well, that's the whole gig. Right. You know, that's like that's why what do you do is with such a huge deal in this book? Yeah. Right. 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 But I think culturally, if you don't have a way to deal with guilt when you don't meet that image. Well, then you need to do away with the image. You've got to get rid of the image so that you don't yeah, incur guilt upon yourself. The guilt, yeah, right, right, right. And that goes back to the narratives, right? Goes back yes. to the narratives yeah. you have to eliminate the stories you tell, because the stories are the models that 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 offer you faithfulness and nobility or the lack thereof. And thus in the contrasting of the existence of, of the faithfulness of the nobility versus the lack thereof in the area in between there is where the guilt exists without the story. You can, you can at least ignore the guilt. Yeah. Right. For a time. Right. Till you explode. (laughs) Right. Well, and I think that this, again, you know, Tim, you asked me last week, why do you like, this book so much was there you know a time in your life and i and i i think at the time i read this book for the first time i was i had been raised again to your can of worms here's mine like i had really been raised with this idea that once you're a christian you don't need to ever feel guilty Hmm. right like christ has taken your sin and he has nailed it to the cross and then you are just kind of free from that point on but i was wrestling at the time i read this novel with but it's there's so much i have to repent of, I feel like I haven't, I absorbed that so much to, I, I, I think that it was twisted in my soul and I'm not saying anything about the theology of that, but I'm saying about my own flawed faith. Like I had absorbed that so much. I didn't know what to do when I felt guilty. It didn't dry. I, I, I just thought I should stop feeling guilty. Just stop it. But it is guilt that leads to repentance, which leads to 
that's the pilgrimage of the Christian life, right? Yeah, and so it, the transformation. Right. And so I think that that the step from guilt yeah. to repentance was what this book helped name for me. And that how that is transforming spiritually. So then do you think that this is a book that is sort of, I mean, to borrow an Eastern term, do you think this is a book about theosis? I do absolutely think this is a book about theosis. Yes. Yes. And there's some reasons for that, which we're not there yet in the story, but there's like, the, I absolutely do think that that's true, but I wouldn't for, have been able to say that at the time. Right. And for people who don't know, theosis is like the idea of it's the transformation with the aim or the idea of being union, being, being in union with God sort of. Yes. With is the that, divine I'm nature. Saying, I'm yes. saying that in the most simp- oversimplified way possible for the sake of the show. But if you want to look it up, which it's a, that's in the title. Right, right. The right. glory there's right. the, and so the power and the glory. Um, but that is so powerful that I, the, the priest guilt is, is super important in this story. Um, which again, goes to very deep spiritual paradox that we as readers, if we love the priest and some people don't, but if we do, we want to set him free from all that guilt, but it is that guilt that is his pilgrimage that makes that forms him to be more like Christ. Hmm. This, this reminds me of a passage, but there's no way I'm gonna be able to find it in the next minute or so. I wouldn't think. Hey Tim, talk for a second, see if I can find it. And but I know you have to go, so offer some final thoughts here. We got to. <laughs> My final thought. I want to say thank you to all the close readers who um, sent me a belated birthday gift. I, I showed up onto my little porch on Tuesday and there was a picnic basket there waiting for me. And it was full of coffee and tea and all these wonderful short letters from listeners. And it, I can't tell you how it hmm. absolutely made my, more than my day, it made my month. And it was so kind. And one of the other things that was so, I mean, like, this is just a little thing, but even the coffee that was in the basket, it's like the best coffee in the world. It's my favorite coffee, Stumptown coffee out of Portland. And somebody did research and somebody knew yeah, that man. like, it's the Joe coach. Let's not just get Tim a good coffee. Let's get him the very best coffee for him. I, so I'm very, very thankful. They do an uncomfortable amount of research. <laughs> I call it. It's just a kidding. very comfortable yes, amount of research for me. That's a, that's a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> But did you find it, David? Um, no, but there was because the the weird thing is when I was reading, there was a part that specifically reminded me of that idea of theosis, and I meant to I wrote theosis in the margins, but I can't find it right now because um, my writing apparently is is unreadable. Um, but anyway, Heidi, final thoughts. Tim, you can go if you need to. We know that you have things you've got to get to. Okay. Okay. Bye, Heidi. Bye, Tim. Bye, David. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Um, well, I wanted my, I do have a final thought and it is about Brigida, his little daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, no, we didn't get to her. Yeah. We will. Yes. Well, and I don't know. I mean, that is what that passage about her is where I thought of theosis for the first time. Um, when he loves an actual person 
a real live human being in a real way for the first time in his life. Uh, it's on page 82 in my Penguin Classics edition. Uh, and it says, he went down on his knees and pulled her to him while she giggled and struggled to be free. I love you. I'm your father and I love you. Try to understand that. He held her tightly by the wrist and suddenly she stayed still looking up at him. And he said, I would give my life. That's nothing. My soul, my dear, my dear, try to understand that you are so important. That was the difference he had always known between his faith and theirs, the political leaders of the people who cared only for things like the state and the republic. This child was more important than a whole continent. And he said, you must take care of yourself because you are so necessary. Now, this is one of the very deepest paradoxes of this book, and I could not possibly resolve this for myself or for anybody else, but that this mortal sin that he has committed to have this child is the thing that actually teaches him to love for the first time with anything like what it really means to the human soul to be transformed by love. And this is so powerful this love for this little girl who is actually a really hard person to love. And they make a lot of negative predictions about her. And he committed a mortal sin in order to learn this lesson. And I can't resolve that, but I can look at it and be moved by it. Very deeply moved and transformed by that little scene. I love that scene because it's such a mystery. That's in contrast. Well, not in contrast, but that goes along with page 66 earlier. Hmm. with the uh where is it where is it sorry um think about she knows is this she knows her catechism but she won't say it so he's talking to her before the if this is before the police have come and all that um and he says he was aware of an immense load of responsibility it was indistinguishable for love this he thought must be what all parents feel ordinary men go through life like this crossing their fingers praying against pain afraid this is what we escape at no cost at all, sacrificing an unimportant motion of the body. For years, of course, he had been responsible for souls, but this was different. Um, you could trust God to make allowances, but you couldn't trust smallpox, starvation, men. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see, then it goes, and then she asked, she asked him if he's the gringo. Um, and then <laughs> he caught the look and... Doubling, by the way. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then it was as he see, he caught the look in the child's eyes, which frightened him. It was as again as if a grown woman was there before her time, making her plans, aware of far too much. It was like seeing his own mortal sin look back at him without contrition. Yes, and that of course is there's a doubling there as well because that's that's this thing about um, Brigida goes back to the stuff about coral as well in the previous. Yes, day. but the Absolutely. idea that to what you were just saying, the mortal sin looking back at him, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so this immortal that that. To, what you said, I think you called it a paradox that you couldn't resolve, right? Yes. Said, yeah. Yeah. Which, is, you know, every great book has a few paradoxes we can't resolve, right? Absolutely. That's what makes them great. But we still recognize the truth in them. I think that's what makes it a paradox and not just a flaw in the narrative, mm. right? Yeah, when there's word. something that you, that contradicts itself and yet you, there's a recognition of truth from the reader. Mm. Yeah. Um that happens. I just think, I mean, it's too numerous to count in this novel, those little moments, but I I, th- I have to say, I think Brigitte is the most glaring of them. Mm. 
that's the one that's like, I don't know how to solve that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> something for people true. to listen to Yeah, as they read the rest of this next bit, the next few chapters. So um, with that, we will go ahead and, and wrap up this episode. Um, thanks to Tim for being here. Heidi, thank you for being here. Uh, yeah, thanks. thanks, David. Thanks to everyone who has been listening. And thanks, of course, to Belmont Abbey College for sponsoring. If you want to learn about their programs, their travel abroad options, their or study abroad options, their scholarships and so forth, then you can head over to belmontabbeycollege.edu slash great books. We are um, really uh, glad to be working with them. They're a pretty local school for us. So um, we are excited that they're working with us. My Many of our, many of my former students and our friends and even my cousin uh, have gone there or go there now. And we are big fans of Belmont Abbey College. So check them out if you're interested. All right. And with that, for Tim and for Heidi and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network and the Cersei Institute, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening and happy reading. 